Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak to Bryce Crocker, CEO of Jevois Mining. He gives us an update on their BFS and also the acquisition of a refinery dam in Brazil and what the plan is for building this out in the context of Donald Trump's executive order this week around critical minerals. If you want to get our opinion and thoughts on that, you can get that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also get company reports, uh, commentary from market experts from all around the world. There are training videos, uh, summaries of other interviews that we've done. And of course, there's a thriving community of investors on there sharing their thoughts and, and ideas together in a safe environment. Uh, you can uh, go there now for a seven-day free trial. Bryce, how are you doing, sir? I'm well, Matthew. You? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. But I hear you're over in Washington. Is that right? Yeah, I'm based in D.C. I've been here for four weeks now. Uh been in the US for probably two, two months, two and a half months, spent the first six weeks in Idaho, and now across here. So why is that? What are you having to do up in DC? Why is that the place to be? Uh, I mean, we're working with government. Clearly, cobalt has been listed as by the Department of the Interior as one of the critical minerals. It's, uh, I mean, there's 35 minerals listed on the list. And to be frank, there's it's kind of all different orders of priority. But my take is that rare earths and cobalt and not not just my take certainly the way that the dod and the government looks at it cobalt's right up there uh we'll be the only cobalt mine in the united states when we come into production in 2022 so the level of political attention and focus and encouragement that we're getting is disproportionate to what it would be as if we were versus say a gold mine which is good because ultimately we're a small company and so relevancy matters and the fact that we that it uh, that cobalt kind of is at the forefront of political attention, both in the United States and also Australia, is it's positive for us. Which well. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let, let's get into that uh, again for people new to the story. Give us that one minute overview, and I'll pick up some on some of those cues you just gave me. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, we're we're about creating an operating company. So we're a group of executives, largely from Glencore. Uh, I was part of the founding management team at Extrata, IPO'd in two thousand and two, one, and stayed until we sold the Glencore in 2013. So uh, there's a group of executives who've come from large company backgrounds and we're coming down to this end of the market. I mean, I say that, but also I mean, a couple of the principals, Peter Johnson and Brian Kennedy, they founded Silver Lake. So Silver Lake, they IPO'd that at I think $20, $30 million. And obviously Silver Lake's now two and a half bill. Uh, Brian Kennedy founded Reliance Mining, which was sold to Consmin for 300 after he IPO'd at 30. So it's not the first time that some of the principals involved have done this, but it is the first time that I'm at this end of the market and learning three years in. So we're creating an operating company. It's really about how do we aggregate assets that are going to become operations, not just promote, but actually come into um, generating cash flow. And how do we create a business that's got some industrial logic focused on battery raw materials? So we've got strong backgrounds in nickel and cobalt. We believe in the commodity. Uh, my view, we tend not to talk about the commodity. And if you look through our investor presentations, you won't see a single slide, not one, over the last three years on either commodity. We do believe that what we bring at this end of the market is proprietary. I mean, I'm not in the business of kind of disseminating that. Uh, that's 
the value of what we believe that we have through our trading backgrounds and through our networks. We kind of, obviously, we want to keep it for our Bergevois shareholders, including ourselves. We're trying to bring a different model to the market. We own 4%, uh, about 14% on a diluted basis. Uh, we put in just under three Aussie mil into the last raise. We'll continue to stand in our corner. We look at ourselves as co-investors. Um, my wife happily tells me that I could double or triple my salary if I went to a different company tomorrow, as could many of our executives. But equally, because we own the equity upside, at the end of the day, if I go to a large mining company, I'm also not going to make the economic outsized returns that if we can take Jeff Wire and turn it into what we expect, obviously, we, we will do well and shareholders will do disproportionately well as well. So it's really about creating an operating company. And that was, that's been underlying the basis of a number of acquisitions. Uh, that culminated in some announcements this week of a bankable feasibility study for Idaho and then the acquisition of a refinery to take that product to market in Brazil. Good man. Okay, look, uh, we've been following you some for some time. We've spoken over the past you know, 18 months or so. And you know, I, I do remember that conversation um, when we first started. So you come from you know big company mentality. When you drop down in the junior space, it's not always that easy. And you've been on a bit of a journey, okay? You, you had your Nico Young asset the and then Kalembe and you so Nico Young Australia Kalembe in Uganda and then you finally picked up um, your project in Idaho and I think that was the moment the seminal moment from for me in terms of you know what we see uh, with you guys so I'm interested in how the plan has changed since you started I know you said you're, you're still learning but I, I think you're you're past that point now because you're putting together the pieces in the right order it seems so Tell, tell me about why Idaho was a big moment for you guys in terms of understanding where you fit in the mix. The plan hasn't changed significantly. So we, I came in as Jeff Wire in September 2017, and within 10 days, we'd put forward a bid on Kabanga, and I'd approached the ex-CEO of eCobalt who owned this asset. So this was an asset that we'd know, we identified when we came in as Jeff Wire, we had a shortlist, and Idaho was up there at the top. It was up there at the top because we traded cobalt, we know cobalt, we know the United States, we know what the United States thinks about cobalt, and then the United States has no cobalt mines. This is the only deposit of relevance and scale that's going to become, uh, has the potential to become a mine. And we don't talk about what we do table. I presented at the US Cross-Executive Subcommittee in December 2019. It's chaired by the White House and the DOE. But in one, one item that's not sensitive or confidential, as I said, look, I hope I'm wrong, as an Australian, because we're doing this for economic reasons, but there's also geopolitical. I mean, I believe in what we're doing, creating a supply chain that excludes China and protecting Western industry. And I articulated, look, I hope I'm wrong. I hope in the United States in 10 years' time, you've got three cobalt mines. But I don't see that. Everything else out there is moose pasture. No disrespect to my North American peers, but once you take out the large sites in Canada of Raglan, Sudbury, Boise's Bay, there's nothing in the United States that's going to become a mine on the cobalt side, um, except Idaho. So that really underpinned why we uh, we did our dance with eCobalt. I mean, they were capped at five times us, I think, when I made the initial approach. So uh, it took time, but eventually markets moved in our favour. Their shareholder base moved in our favour and we were able to consummate, I mean, we call it a merger, but it was a nil premium takeover, obviously. Uh, I mean, Nico Young was the cornerstone asset that we identified. So when we decided what we wanted to do, create this vehicle in the public company space, 
uh, as opposed to doing it with working with private equity, where many of us were after after Extrated Glencore. Uh, Nico Young was mispriced. Uh, we saw a pathway to production that was lower capital, lower technical risk. And so that's really how ZY became the vehicle. We still have Nico Young. I mean, the acquisition in Brazil actually takes 200 Aussie mil off the CapEx because we can now take an intermediate across. Uh, but equally, I mean, I like to think that I am building reputation. I mean, I don't, I don't make statements that aren't correct. Nico Young is not going to be in production in 2022 when we turn on the refinery for, uh, for ICO. Nico Young has value. Uh, I mean, at the Tesla battery day last week, obviously huge amounts of press. And when you kind of back solve the numbers uh, that on the nickel side that Elon needs or ostensibly needs, I mean, they just, it's obviously just mind boggling. Um, so nickel will have its, we're bullish on nickel, uh, bullish on cobalt. If cobalt was easy to substitute, would have been done a long time ago. DRC didn't turn into an unpleasant jurisdiction in the last six months. It's been that way for, well, since the Belgians left, really. Um, so well, there is an industrial logic to what we're looking to do. Uh, we're still there in Africa. I mean, obviously, uh, we've been, I've been negotiating with African governments on Kabanga in Tanzania and Kalembi on, in Uganda now for two years. Frustratingly slow, but we're there, we're credible, we've got a seat at the table. Uh, there are options that certainly are not reflected in our share price. Uh, and they're low cost options as well. Um, at the, but the focus now is really about building an operating business and ICO is the cornerstone. And we've essentially unlocked a key and a really exciting key in Brazil in San Miguel Paulista refinery. Okay, so let me interrupt if I may. Okay, I get that Nico Young and Kalembe are low cost options for you at the moment. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna, park them because I think the market has parked them. As far as we see is people are giving you value for ICO and what you are about to do with the refinery down in, in Brazil. I'm interested in what you're building there. You've used the phrase twice, industrial logic. You want to be operators. And that's not the language of juniors usually. They don't start from that position. So tell me how you're going to bring together ICO and you know, what you're planning to do with SMP and you know, build out that story. In the US, I'm, buying, I'm a buyer of the US um, story in the sense that it's the only meaningful uh, cobalt mine um, and therefore supply from US for this critical minerals component. So how do you deliver that? How do you deliver this industrial logic? I think when I'm pulling together a slide for an investment presentation next week in Australia of all the, uh, every publicly listed group across Australia, the TSX, ASX, that's got nickel cobalt exposure that's specific for batteries, so excluding ferronickel. And you know what, there's there's two on that list that deal in refined product. One is Cuban and essentially owned by the bondholders, what listed in Toronto, but essentially has Cuban assets and is in default. And the other is us. Of all the other companies out there, nobody is dealing in actually sitting down with OEMs and battery makers and dealing with them with a the product in the form that they want. So yeah, they're exposed to the battery space, but actually you're not. You're selling an intermediate product to someone else who's then dealing with companies that are dealing with the battery space. And I think, because we understand this, obviously we came from a trading background. He who holds the product is king. He who controls the product is king. And what this does and why San Miguel is so exciting is uh, it, it enables us to take, I mean, we were negotiating with OEMs and battery makers 
uh, outside of China. So the Japanese, the Koreans, obviously Europeans, Americans. Uh, but obviously at Idaho, it produces a concentrate. Intermediate product, none of these consumers can actually use it. They need to come back to either us or one of the major trading groups and, can, and look to convert or toll that into a form that they can actually use for their physical flow sheets. Same for super alloy producers, um, needs to be a metallic form. So what San Miguel actually provides is it gives us a mechanism to take the product to market, to take the product to market in a form that it wants, and it's within our control. I mean, we control it now. I'm not sitting down and trying to negotiate with, with uh, other groups that control refining capacity and coax capacity out of them on attractive terms. I mean, we own the refinery. We, we control what's going in. So we're, we're not tired. I mean, a lot of certain groups will put up, well, we'll make a big deal out of kind of being committed to certain trading groups as though that's an advantage. I mean, we work for those trading groups and I can tell you it's <laughs> exclusivity. <laughs> exclusivity doesn't equal enhancement of economic terms for the junior. Um, we spent our whole career nailing juniors to the wall. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, that's exactly what, if you look across the asset base of many of these trading groups, uh, many of the assets because we screwed juniors into a corner and they defaulted and then we took the keys. I mean, that's kind of the business model. And the fact that we've got a refinery asset, we control what's going in, we control what's going out. So we also understand our limitations. I mean, we're not, we're not a multi-billion dollar trading group. Yeah, I don't have credit lines of hundreds of millions of dollars, but we do have the, we've got the organisational, we know what we're doing organisationally. We also understand what we do and don't have. Uh, so, and I think we've got a degree of credibility with potential finance providers to, to do some pretty interesting things in terms of how that refinery can restart. Okay, so well, let's talk about some of the numbers there. Um, because, you know, if I, if I listen to like uh, Tesla Battery Day, they spend a lot of time talking about, you know, not moving lithium molecules all around the world and then, uh, you know, digging holes, digging them out of holes and putting them back into holes. You know, all that kind of big analogy to say mining's horribly inefficient. You know, Glencore, you know, track record of owning various refineries around the world and shipping stuff left, right and centre. Is that kind of like new thinking, that new economics important to you, um, you know, in terms of you setting up an operation? Do you, do you feel that you or do you think mining's mining and it doesn't need to change, doesn't change for 100 years? I mean, mining mining will need to change, but I mean, I can use a practical, I mean, a, a very topical recent example. So, we undertook a scoping study to build a cobalt refinery in the United States. Well, I knew the answer to that before we even started. I knew it was going to be uneconomic. The reason I wanted that study is because I'm sitting here in Washington and I want to be able to demonstrate and to have sensible conversations with policymakers that. Uh, I mean, we're not in the business of wasting Jevois' money, but why I think we've got credibility here in DC is we also don't like wasting taxpayers' money. So if something doesn't make sense, I'm not going to ask the government to fund something that doesn't make sense. Uh, so the cap, the scoping study for a two and a half thousand ton cobalt refinery in Idaho came out at just shy of $200 million US. Now we're purchasing a 2,000 ton cobalt refinery in Brazil uh, that's got a 25,000 ton nickel refinery kind of with it. Uh, for a 20 million, 22.5 on current FX. So the economics of that are pretty clear. Uh, cobalt's a higher value product. Cobalt and nickel are higher value products. Uh, if you're shipping ore, I mean, we're taking a, a high value product and it, it travels. It doesn't travel indefinitely. But again, if you look at the 
mean, if we cast our mind back to the nickel pig iron industry in China, for example, back before they induced the, the facilities to be constructed in, in China, in Indonesia, all of that ore was getting shipped to China. And nickel ore, if you put it, I mean, nickel ore was what, 2% nickel best. Um, so that was economic. The Chinese were making money. They didn't build ferronickel facilities in Indonesia because they weren't making money. They built ferronickel facilities in Indo because the government said, we're not going to let you export ore. Um, so if you put that in, I mean, I'm using a couple of figures, but say if your long-term cobalt price is five times what your long-term nickel price is, that 2% ore is the equivalent of a 0.4% cobalt ore. Um, so in terms of economics, the concentrate that we moved from Idaho to, to Brazil, it's 10%. So it's like you're moving something that inherently is 10 to 15 times as valuable on a weight basis. So the economics make sense. And it's about securing supply chains as well. So, I mean, we're taking something from Idaho, we're taking it down to Brazil, we land at Santos Port, and again, I don't want to tell people and pretend it's not in Brazil, but I lived in Brazil for five years and I can tell you there's a massive difference between landing a product at Santos Port in the state of Sao Paulo, which has a population of 40 million people and a GDP only behind Mexico in terms of Latin America's scale, driving 100 kilometres a lot, a truck along a divided highway to a plant which is in Sao Paulo City that's five kilometres from Garulhos, the major bit major. I think it's probably must be the busiest international airport in Latin America, driving it back to Santos Port and re-exporting the product. Still Brazil, but if uh, it's it's different. We're not going into Paris State. We're not going into Tocantins. We're not going into Amazonas. You don't have all those kind of issues that you have in different part, other parts of Brazil. And uh, we control that. So that's very important. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm, when I'm talking with politicians here in DC and also Idaho, because obviously the, the Idaho delegation, they they would love a US refinery and they'd love it to be in their state. I get that. Uh, but ultimately the mine, the, to build a, and why I say I knew the study was gonna be uneconomic, uh, 2000 tonne cobalt refineries, it's not competitive, yeah? I mean, if you look at the facilities that we've been involved with previously, Nickelverk, 5,000. Uh, I mean, Murrum would have been the smallest and that was three and a half but obviously attached to a 40,000 ton nickel refinery, like you need scale, you need, uh, you gotta have something, there's no point building a facility that's not competitive, that's just gonna come cyclically in and out of the market and result in instability, social instability in the area that operates. Right, so SMP sounds cheap, sounds like the right move strategically for you guys. Um, you're gonna have to, when does that actually complete and close? Well, the acquisition, the contracts concluded, so the structure is, uh, it's a tiered entry. So we pay a deposit, 15 million EAs, which is, I mean, we put in current exchange rates just to be, to, to, yeah, for those that. that aren't. So about 2.7 US we pay by the end of the year. Right. We then have a period up until uh, September where we uh, undertake a feasibility study, talk to third party suppliers, define the business plan. And then if we choose to close, which is obviously our strong expectation, then we pay the remainder based on a number of tranches on production and closing up until June 2023. Right. And with the nickel component there, I mean, what are your plans with that? Well, there were three production scenarios that we articulated uh, that we undertook very detailed work on in due diligence, including test work, and that we articulated in our investor presentation. So one was we just run a 2,000 tonne cobalt refinery 
uh, and run, run the ICO concentrate through. Uh, the other is that we convert nickel capacity to cobalt. And we said, well, I mean, let's not um, try and shoot the lights out, but we'll take the 6,000 because we know that there's cobalt hydroxides out there, significant amounts of cobalt hydroxides out there. Let's take the refinery up to 8,000 tonnes of cobalt. I mean, if we did that, it would be the, I think, second largest, after Coca-Cola, second largest cobalt refinery in the world and the largest metallic cobalt refinery in the world. Okay, so let this help people understand the market at the moment because obviously the prices have been a lot higher, prices have been a lot lower. This sort of, you know, what's your outlook for the market at the moment? Because people are just a bit nervous about cobalt because you've got people like Tesla saying, oh, we've got some of our batteries are not going to have cobalt in it, but... The market's a little bit bigger than that, so. I think that despite what Elon says, there's a, there's quite a disconnect between what Elon says and the purchasing behaviour of his commercial department. I mean, Tesla is the largest cobalt consumer globally and will be that way for uh, for as long as we're working. Um, now, they've done an exceptional job at substituting out cobalt. Their NCA chemistry is probably down to 3% cobalt. Fantastic job. But... If cobalt was easy to substitute, as I said, we wouldn't be having this discussion. It'd be gone. It's there for a reason. It provides thermal stability. It prevents thermal runaway. It's not easy to substitute out. Uh, and the chemistries, again, I mean, will Tesla get to a zero cobalt battery on with high nickel? You know, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't bet against Elon. Will it? Will they get there commercially on an industrial scale in the next decade? No way. That's my personal view. I think that the, the level of risk associated with taking that last bit of cobalt out of an NC chem, NCA chemistry versus the implications on safety and the um, marginal benefit on performance in terms of speed and range, the, the math doesn't add up. I mean, the, the sensitivity on cobalt is not around price. I mean, that's, it's not, my take is that downstream users, and we're dealing with them all, they don't really care if cobalt's like 50 bucks, 35 bucks or 15 bucks. They just don't want their cobalt mined by children who are dying underground in Africa. Simplistically, that's kind of that's what that's the that's the greater concern around cobalt, and that's why the substitution pressures are so have been so strong. It's more, I see it more driven by ESG than economics. The actual amount of cobalt in the vehicle now is not going to swing the dial. Okay, so let's again just on the macro, but if you don't mind, what are the supply demand drivers at the moment over and above Tesla? Well, I think, I mean, aerospace is obviously crushed. I mean, clearly, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, batteries are growing. Batteries are growing strongly. Uh, I'm a, I mean, I'm bullish on EVs. I really do. I mean, obviously, we're talking to uh, all the OEMs, uh, all the battery makers. We've got access to internal forecasts, and it's just... Uh, I mean, obviously, Tesla's kind of at the mind-boggling end, but the other ones are still boggling. There's a... The out, there's no ambiguity about the chemistry that's really being locked in outside of China. It's high nickel. It's high nickel chemistries. That's across the board. There might be some divergences. Obviously, Tesla's chosen NCA outside of China. Most of the others are going NMC. Uh, but I think if you look at the rollout of an NMC 811, I think that's illustrating because two years ago, everyone was saying, well, 811, it's, it's going to be the battery chemistry of choice. It's going to be here. And you, yeah, I mean, 811, it's, it's there, it's coming. But 811 is like, like it's not 90% of the NMC chemistries that are getting rolled out. The bulk of them are still 532s and others because you know what? The incremental complexity in terms of going that last stretch isn't worth it economically for the battery makers and is certainly not worth the risk. So 
I'm very bullish on EVs. I'm very bullish on both the metals that go into them. And I do think that there's a unique opportunity to create something from an investment perspective that's kind of got a bit of, that's got direct, more direct exposure to this thematic, uh, uh, which is really what we're looking to create by bringing in San Miguel and, and coming into production in North America. I mean, something that you saw Elon focus on was that North American uh, supply chain. And I can tell you that the, the focus of his peers is as strong or stronger in this area. I mean, there's a huge, governments have been focused on cobalt and on supply chains and on China for a number of years. They're making significantly more progress now than they did before. Uh, but industry, pre-COVID, I'm not saying industry wasn't paying attention, but industry was less concerned. I mean, the US automakers, the, their mentality, at least from my perspective, was like, we don't, we don't really need to think about domestic supply chains. We can continue buying batteries off South Korea. Why would we care about necessarily replicating that capital investment at home here in the United States. That mindset's changing. Uh, they don't want to have supply chains that crisscross across the globe. And obviously some of the Asian economies are more heavily intertwined with China from a trade perspective and unwinding that is going to be complicated. Uh, so that's something that we're certainly seeing. I mean, there's a strong, strong pressure and it's not just the United States, Europe as well. I mean, people, people are seeing EVs for what it is. It's a transformative event. And you don't want to be reliant. You want to have you want to have a degree of self sufficiency in that transformative event. Okay, so what's what's the other side of this uh, executive order stuff where you put, you're putting these thirty five different um, components on there? What do they give you? What does that give you? If you're going to be a, cr- a critical mineral to the U.S. government, what are they? How are they helping you? Are they introducing you to funders? Are they introducing you to industrial partners as part of your industrial logic? I mean, what do they, how do they help you? I mean, we've been careful not to play out any discussions we have with government in the public domain, but clearly, I mean, there, there is legislation, DPA Title III, which you obviously would have, some of the readers or audience will be familiar with through some of the questions around ventilators, et cetera. So, I mean, DOD has various titles under, under DPA Title III that was extended to DFC, uh, the old OPIC. Uh, the DOE has the, the last executive order that you that you referenced earlier that came out a couple of days ago that provided additional uh, flexibility to the DOE in terms of advanced vehicle technology and what that could mean. So, I mean, there's a number of and the, the government essentially has a lot of flexibility in terms of how they choose or choose not to get involved. Uh, I mean, we're here when I think that I'm here because it's important that. They understand I mean, what, that, that who Jevoir is, what we're looking to do, why we're important. And to the extent that we're not in the business of, I mean, ideologically, my view is very strongly that governments shouldn't interfere in commodity markets. Uh, I think that's different. I mean, again, to take what I articulated at the US Cross-Executive Subcommittee, I said, your problem right now is that yeah, every shitty uneconomic rare earths project in the world is now coming to you for funding. And the reason why they haven't been built is because they're shitty uneconomic rare earths projects. So, and I don't want the governments anywhere to be going off and building cobalt deposits or nickel deposits that are uneconomic. Like that's not in my interest because I've got a good deposit. I've got a good business. I don't want the government undermining free markets. But equally, if you take a step back and you look at the playing field isn't level. If you look at the way that China is influencing global commodity markets, what they've done in the DRC, uh, what they're doing, 
the US has a problem. Australia is a like-minded ally. We've got a problem, as does the UK, as does Canada. And to the extent that governments do take a more proactive approach in terms of dealing with that problem, then again, we're, we're here, we're articulating what we see as the problem. We, we see what's happening in the DRC, we see uh, what's happening elsewhere, and we think that we can be part of the solution. Okay. We're not the only, we're not the only solution. I mean, US cobalt demand is probably 15,000 tonnes, and if we, when we come on a production, we'll be two. But zero out of 15, so two out of 15 is better than zero out of 15. So Yeah, yep. okay, well, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Idaho, because, you know, the, the DFS or BFS is, uh, come out. The numbers look okay. I want to talk to you about, you know, you put the numbers in there at, I mean, what, 20, $20, $25 a, a pound cobalt? Is that is that a fair reflection of where things are at the moment? I mean, first of all, there's sensitivities there. So yeah. I don't actually get that hang up on what price we put in the study because I can put in, I mean, and I think investors are smart enough as well. If I put, if I put out a study and put 40 bucks a pound in, Mm. investors would, wouldn't look at 40 bucks a pound. They'd go straight to the sensitivity table and say, well, my cobalt price is 20. What does it look like at 20? Now, uh, 25, my view is that if you look at the most investment banking, when we, we, we looked at consensus, consensus from investment banks pretty consistently in the low 20s. If you look at the independent forecasters that consider themselves experts in the area, most of them would kind of be above the 25 on a long-term basis. Uh, I mean, if, what I would say is that the cost curve for cobalt's opaque, um, but the cost curve is changing. So we've got a background where we went, when we first initially went into the DRC with the big copper operations, uh, obviously the, the, the sites that we were more familiar with with Katanga and Mutunda. Uh, I mean, cobalt initially was almost free. I mean, it was really, I mean, initially we didn't, it wasn't even measured as a cost input at that time. It just kind of came out with the copper at Mutunda. And came out in uh, in waves, so. But the days of the DRC punching out these big operations uh, producing cobalt for less than five dollars a pound—that's actually not real anymore. The DRC is an expensive place to operate. It's landlocked. Um, the logistics are just terrific. You got to get consumables in. You got to get expats in. Expats don't go to the DRC for the same price that they'll come and work in Idaho. It's an expensive place to operate. So when you look at our operating costs in Idaho, that's why it's exciting. I mean, seven bucks fifty—that's DRC like OPEX, yeah. That, that's DRC like OPEX. Um, so uh, my view is, I mean, clearly we're not at twenty-five dollars today. Do I think that twenty-five is an appropriate long-term price? Absolutely, I do. Okay, um, talk to me more about the <laughs> opaque nature of the market because again, we had Joe Kataravac of uh, Cobalt Blue come on and did a session with us and said, you know, it's it's a relatively small but highly valuable market. Um, but it is opaque. He's the same word as you. It's because there's no kind of regulation or tracking or monitoring of any note, or in a meaningful, not in a meaningful way anyway. So it's. I think it's worth people understanding that. So, so even if it was 25, 25 is not always 25. Well, I think that, I mean it's a traders' market. Yeah. So this is the thing. I mean, when I'm, when there's only six, eight people, when when we left, there was like six or eight cobalt traders and everyone else in the market knew nothing. That's something that I will say, unless you're physically trading the product, doesn't matter if you're writing research, doesn't matter if you're talking to everyone, you don't know, you don't know. Like, unless you're physically trading the product, unless you've got a book, you don't know. You're just relying on what someone else is telling you. Um, so that's something that I would say about the research that Kind of a lot of it's that's out there, and the same applies for investment banks because the investment banks don't have the 
necessarily the trading capability in the product. Uh, it's I mean, it's opaque, but I think that it's a market which is changing. There's more transparency coming in with some of the metrics. I mean, cobalt hydroxides, for example, was never when we were trading it, there was never any kind of benchmark pricing that was getting reflected in commercial contracts. Um, that's that's changing. Uh, the, the market's evolving, but it's still. I mean, we know the market. We like the market, um, and it's something that that. Uh, it's certainly from a from a financing perspective, uh, it still has challenges versus a copper. I think for commercial banks to get their head around, but it's not it's not a lithium. It's not uh, it's not something that's kind of quite a boutique chemical that you really can't understand or get comfort from a credit perspective. Okay, so on the BFS, you've you've put out some numbers. Market reactions, I suggest, have been quite positive given your share price. Uh, the movement is quite good. You're two hundred million Aussie uh, market cap now long way from when we first met. So it's going the right direction. But at the same time, Idaho can't be it. What's next? Because you're going to need to get some scale into this uh, industrial logic of yours. I mean, we've got a big refinery now. So we've got a refinery that's got a 25,000 tonne nickel capacity and a 2,000 tonne cobalt. Idaho fills the 2,000 tonne cobalt. So now we have to figure out what we do with the other 25,000 tonne of nickel. Do we leave it as nickel? Do we convert some to cobalt? Now, it brings Nico Young, as I said, back onto the table, but it doesn't bring Nico Young back onto the table in 2022. Nico Young is still a number of years after that. So, I mean, what we are actively doing now is talking to third-party MHP mixed hydroxide suppliers, a nickel intermediate that uh, San Miguel Paulista processed historically. We're opening discussions with cobalt hydroxide suppliers to ascertain should we be, should we be converting capacity. Uh, so there's a number of... Uh, commercial initiatives now that are underway to really support the restart of the facility. Focus is really on just getting into production as quickly as we can. So the earliest that we can start production based on the Idaho cobalt concentrate supply is 2022. I can't accelerate that. That's, that's, uh, I've got to build a mine to get, that's fast though in our industry. I mean, mid 2022, that's pretty, that's, that's, a, that's again, again, I think a differentiating factor versus the other companies that are moving into development, most of them have higher capex in their five years from production that's never going to arrive. I mean, this, we've got a real mine that is economic, that is going to be built. Um, we can accelerate the restart of San Miguel Paulista um, if we have other materials that can come through. So that's really what the commercial focus is on now. Can we negotiate commercial arrangements from bankable suppliers uh, it changes the dynamic completely in terms of the offtake, um, because previously, conceptually, if you're selling a concentrate, a cobalt concentrate, you've got, I mean, for argument's sake, six customers, six potential end users could have taken the product. Uh, the six potential end users, as you say, cobalt's a small industry, they all know each other. Uh, I don't want to say it's a controlled or it's a cartel, but I used to work in it and I didn't, I mean, no one bids against themselves and no one bids, they don't bid aggressively against each other. So what we've, simplistically what we've done now is we've transformed that six to 60. Like we've now we've got all the automakers, all the battery makers, all the, all the US specialty steel companies, uh, the, the, the breadth of partners that we can look to work with is significantly greater because we can provide the product in a form that all of these groups really want. And that opens up a lot of funding and structural uh, as we're working through uh, offtake and thinking about financing and thinking about 
where do we put leverage in? Do we do we do we like this is the right security package for the project finance facility for Idaho? Should it still be just the US or should we expand that to encompass Brazil? Uh, what are the benefits uh, and uh, challenges associated with that? We can sell equity at the ICO project level. We can sell equity at the refinery level. Um, just because we paid $22.5 million doesn't mean we have to sell 50% for 11.25. Yeah, that's, there's, there's a number of ways that we've now, we've got a lot, I mean, almost not too much flexibility, but what I've said to the team is like, we have to be really focused now. Let's have the workshop, let's work through the options. We're busy updating uh, OEMs and end users as to what the next steps are because we need to get we essentially want to get project financed in idaho by the end of the year and that's the priority right that was the next question is you've got some quite cute structuring to do coming up that's what the market wants to hear because otherwise this is a small company with big company talk right so you've got some of the pieces in place now but you need the money to do that so how much do you think you're going to need to raise i well, appreciate the structure i appreciate the structuring component it's not necessarily all dilutory there's ways you can deliver it but What's the total quantum? The the capex in Idaho was 80 million US. Uh, if we take to a Cal signer, then there's about another uh, in Idaho. You've probably got another 20 uh, to convert the facility, depending on which option we chose. But for example, if we just chose to, to restart it based on Idaho, you'd have about another 10 to 15 US million dollars to restart the refinery on that basis. Uh, so the key is that I mean, this is financeable. So we got the indicative term sheets back from the lenders in December, in sorry, in January, after we provided them an information circular in December, uh, chose not to make an appointment. It was a line ball call as to whether you'd go with commercial lenders or whether you'd go with, if you like, the alternates. Uh, alternates are more expensive, but potentially they can be more flexible on structure, offtake requirements, tenor, leverage, uh, so now we're looking at, we're going back, we're sitting down with the lenders saying this is, these are the structures we think that are interesting. What do you think? Uh, and we'll make a decision about how we want to move forwards. RPM Global were appointed as the independent expert. Uh, they work for the banks, not for Jevois. We allowed them to do about 60% of their work. Uh, then when COVID prevented the site visit, but to be honest, they would have paused it anyway because they work for the banks. They don't work for us. I actually don't want them to finish their report I need them to be to get far enough along that they don't become a constraint on the timing. But then, uh, essentially, we appoint the lender, and then they take over the mandate from RPM. They dictate to RPM what they want the site visit to focus on. Their the RPM work for them, not us. We've compressed that time so that that's why we've still got the ability to close the project finance facility by year end. Interesting, Bryce. I think that's a great update. Like, appreciate appreciate your time today. Um, so, and I wanted it to be a little bit more than just about you know the the refinery and the, and the BFS because it's important for me to understand how you're packaging this together and the way that you think. So, um, I appreciate that. So, it sounds like before the end of the year, you'll have a bit more information around the financing. Well, that's the plan, and that's when I think the market will really take note or should do. Yeah, I think that. I mean, people are really looking for because again, we're a small. I mean, we're a small company, so all all of the suppliers we're we're talking to in terms of the material that comes into San Miguel. I mean, they're not going to be two hundred million dollar market cap companies, and the same the groups that we're selling the product to, they're not going to be two hundred million dollar market cap companies because we need to work with groups that do have balance sheets, that do have credibility, and that allows us to do some interesting things on the financing side. Okay, well, best of luck with that. Pick up the phone, let us know how you get on. I'd be delighted to take that phone call. Thanks, Bryce. Thanks very much. Appreciate that.
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.